When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Like The Art of the Deal. Everybody read The Art of the Deal. Who has read The Art of the Deal in this room? Everybody. I always say, I always say, a deep, deep second to the Bible. The Bible is the best. The Bible. Most importantly, I brought my Bible. The Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. Why, why do I have to, you know, repent? Why do I have to ask for forgiveness if you're not making mistakes? I figure it's probably, maybe the only way I'm going to get to heaven. So I better do a good job. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who bragged about punching his second grade music teacher, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I've been busy this week reacting to Trump's latest outrages. But the goal of the show is to better understand the Trump phenomenon. So today, I'm going to ignore Donald Trump's new line that Barack Hussein Obama is the founder of ISIS. Sorry, Donald, I'm not going to take the bait on this one. Instead, I want to take a breath, step back, and talk about the American electorate. Trump's base is white voters, especially male white voters, especially Christian white male voters, especially older white Christian male voters. Are there enough of those people left as a share of the American population to elect him? And what is it about the older white Christian male voters that makes them gravitate to a candidate like Donald Trump? These are the people who used to run the country. And today, they're the most likely to think that it's going to hell in a handbasket. Minorities, by contrast, are most likely to think the country's getting better. I've got a great guest to talk about that today. He's Robert P. Jones, the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and the author of a really interesting new book called The End of White Christian America. I'll be back with him right after we do the tweets. Dan Bongino, you were fantastic in defending both the Second Amendment and me last night on CNN. Don Lemon is a lightweight, dumb as a rock. Morning Joe's weakness is its low ratings. I don't watch anymore, but I heard he went wild against Rudy Giuliani and the Second Amendment. Sad and irrelevant. Reuters just announced that the Secret Service never spoke to me or my campaign. Made up story by CNN is a hoax. Totally dishonest. Will CNN send its cameras to the border to show the massive unreported crisis now unfolding? Or are they worried it will hurt Hillary? The people who support Hillary sit behind CNN anchor chairs or headline fundraisers, those disconnected from real life.
My guest today is Robert P. Jones. He's the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and the author of a really interesting new book called The End of White Christian America. Robert, thanks for joining me on Trumpcast. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with the basics. What is white Christian America and why is it ending? Yeah, so, you know, I use this term white Christian America as a kind of metaphor for really understanding the cultural and political edifice, you know, that was built primarily by white Protestant Christians from the beginning of the country, really up until the middle of the 20th century, that really set the tone for our national conversations and shaped American ideals. And when I looked at the the numbers, I realized that, you know, that the U.S., that we had actually crossed over this threshold, but not a lot of attention had been made to it. And basically, it's this, that if you take all white Christians in the country, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, non-denominational Christians all who are white and non-Hispanic, we just go back two election cycles ago to 2008, 54% of the country, so a solid majority of the country, identified as white and Christian. That number today is 45%. So we've you know moved about a percentage point a year over the past eight years to election cycles, so that we're today a minority white Christian country is something that I think a lot of uh, particularly conservative white Christians feel, but not a lot of conversations been had about it. And that change is going to accelerate, right? Because the younger you are, the less likely you are to identify to be a white person who identifies yourself as a Christian. That's right. The white Christian population is aging, and it's it's primarily because of two things. Um, One is the immigration patterns in the country with greater numbers of Latinos coming in to the country and also lower birth rates among whites. But the big, the other big accelerant here is that younger white Christians have been leaving Christian churches. And so the number of unaffiliated, um, religiously unaffiliated Americans in the country has actually tripled since the early 1990s. Uh, now nearly a quarter of Americans claim no religious affiliation, and among young people, it's more than a third. So, uh, so Robert, enough about your book. What does this mean for Trump's chances of getting elected? <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I kept waiting to see who he was going to pick, you know, as VP and whether he was going to try to branch out a little bit or, or change up the, you know, traditional lines. Um, and in the book, I talk about the uh, the end of the white Christian strategy. And, I, you know, I argue in the book that Mitt Romney's campaign was really the last one where this strategy was viable, where this, you know, attempt to pile up super majorities of white Christian voters to offset the more you know, younger generation, more pluralistic, growing segments of society uh, was going to work. And I guess it looks like with the selection of Mike Pence as VP, which essentially doubles down on this white Christian strategy, uh, looks like I'm going to have a really nice test case in this election cycle. <laughs> You've given a hostage to fortune, as it were. I mean, if Trump wins the election, among the uh, smaller catastrophes will be that it disproves your thesis. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I mean, I did go on a little bit of a limb here. But, you know, it, it's interesting to, to look, though, that the first, you know, real person to kind of our entity to talk about this was, of course, the Republican National Committee right after 2012 with its kind of famous autopsy report of the Romney campaign where they threw down the gauntlet and said, if we don't expand our tent here, um, you know, beyond white conservative Christian voters, we're going to be at a loss at the national level for, you know, some time to come. And, one one thing that I think kind of helps us look at that is that, you know, in both the ele- – I mentioned the numbers for the general population, but if we look at the electorate, we see the same trends in the electorate just delayed, you know. So in 2012, the number of white Christian voters in the electorate, according to the exit polls, was 57 percent, and if you go back to 2008, it was 61 percent, you know, and if you go back – to 2004, it was 63 percent, and the pattern continues. So the further we come down, the fewer white Christian voters there are out there. And the real challenge is that 
Republican presidential candidates have, since the 1990s, maintained their same reliance on this diminishing pool of voters. So uh, back in 1992, Republican candidates were more than 8 in 10 relying on white Christian voters for their coalition. Romney was also 8 in 10, whereas Democrats have really been following the trends in the uh, population. So Bill Clinton's alliance in 1992 was only 6 in 10 white Christian, but Barack Obama's re-election campaign, less than 4 in 10 white Christian voters. So we have this kind of reliance among the Republican Party on this diminishing you know, pool of voters um, that every year the bar has to be higher for just how much you have to run up the score. Right. But even if you're relying on white Christians, and let's focus here on on white Protestants, you've got two basic groups that are very different. You have northern white Protestants, mainly what Methodists and Presbyterians, and you have southern evangelicals. Do those groups have much in common with each other in terms of how they vote? They seem culturally very different from each other. Yeah, no, it's a great point. They are culturally very different from each other. And, you know, in the book, I kind of break them out very carefully. And so we, yeah, we do have the kind of white evangelical Protestant world, which is, you know, your Southern Baptist, the more Pentecostal denominations that tend to be focused, you know, mostly in the South and the lower Midwest. And then you're right, you have the sort of New England heavy, more liberal mainline Protestants. And they vote, you know, very differently that uh, the white evangelical Protestants have, you know, you look back several election cycles, they vote about eight in 10 for Republican candidates. So they're a solid Republican constituency, whereas the mainline Protestants, the more liberal wing, um, tends to be divided, although interestingly enough, they have leaned Republican slightly, not nearly in the same proportions as, as evangelicals, but they do lean Republican. So the evangelicals are, seem like they're all in for Trump based on the surveys I've seen and, and what I've read about the big evangelical leaders. Trump seems to me, and I can say this because I'm a Jewish atheist, seems to be the least Christian person ever to run for president. He's never turned the other cheek in his life. And, you know, in terms of personal morality, I mean, he's on his third wife and, you know, you could go on and on. But how do evangelicals get past the fact that this guy seems totally unchristian to supporting him. Yeah, I think this is one of the, you know, head scratchers of the election cycle so far, and I, th- I think we'll continue to you know, puzzle over it a bit. Uh, I argue that what, what has happened is that Trump successfully converted uh, these self-described values voters into nostalgia voters. And, and what I mean by that is that basically, you're right, I mean, you look at kind of character issues, um, his own kind of personal biography. There were any number of candidates, Cruz, Santorum, Huckabee, you know, that, that fit the kind of values voters paradigm much more than Trump. But at the end of the day, I think Trump had this sort of instinct that it wasn't just kind of the issue of abortion or the issue of kind of religious liberty and kind of fights around gay rights. Those were just smaller issues. And what he really zeroed in on was a much bigger refrain. And, you know, you saw it even as early as January, he was speaking at a evangelical college and he said, when I'm elected president, we are going to restore power to the Christian churches. None of the, no more of this uh, happy holidays. We're going to be saying Merry Christmas again in this country. And when I'm in the Oval Office, you'll have a friend and you won't need anyone else. And I think that appeal you link that to his campaign slogan, let's make America great again. And it's that last word again, where Trump is really appealing to, you know, turning back the clock, going back to a time where conservative Christians felt that they were more at the center of power, you know, before 
the rise of gay rights, the legalization of same-sex marriage, frankly, before the rise of civil rights. And this kind of 1950s America is really what Trump has harkened back to. And I think that's been a very powerful and a surprisingly powerful appeal to, to white evangelicals. I mean, you use the key word here, which is power. It's about political power. Evangelical Christian leaders are using the cloak of, of religion, but basically their relationship to politics is all about politics and has very little to do with religion. Yeah, I think it has to do with politics, but it also has to do with cultural power. You know, the sense that, you know, one of the more striking quotes as I was doing research for the book said this, that, you know, if you were in charge of something big and important in the middle of the 20th century, chances were you were a white male Protestant person, right, in in the sort of 1950s, uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, You remember there were still, you know, prohibitions at the time on, you know, Jewish quotas to the Ivy Leagues. There was racial prohibitions to join country clubs. And there was still, you know, a lot of kind of white Protestant power in place in the middle of the 20th century. And, you know, I think even in the data, you can see it. When we asked Americans, you know, whether they think American uh, society and way of life has changed for the better or changed the worst since the 1950s, seven in 10 white evangelicals say that it's changed for the worst uh, since the 1950s. And I, I think it is, it is political power, absolutely. It's also cultural power, though. I think this kind of dominant cultural presence that uh, particularly Protestants, white Protestants enjoyed in the middle of the 20th century that many of them feel has just, you know, certainly passed from the scene. I was just about to bring up that survey, Robert, because I thought it was so interesting. And basically, you asked this question, has American culture changed for the worse or the better in the past 60 years? And the people who think it's changed for the worst the most are the white evangelical Protestants. And the people who think it's changed for the better, not surprisingly, are blacks, Hispanics, minorities, Catholics, Democrats, liberals, black Protestants. Very striking numbers. No, I think that's right. That question, you know, I think sorts Americans very strongly into this kind of older, demog- older kind of white Protestant demographic uh, and, you know, a kind of younger more diverse demographic. And, you know, with the way the campaign is uh, shaking out, I mean, I think in many ways we are ending up with this kind of referendum on the passing of this era, you know, in, in a, the kind of white Protestant dominance in America is one, one way to kind of understand how the election is shaking out. Let me ask you about the use of that term Christian there. Could you substitute class in your analysis? I mean, aren't the people who support Trump and the people who think America is better 60 years ago working class whites, maybe as much or more than they happen to be Christian whites or evangelical whites? Well, you know, it's, it's always a combination of, you're right, to point to class as, a, as an issue, but it, it's worth remembering that sort of only, only about half of white evangelicals are white working class. Um, you know, the other half are college educated. And part of the story here actually is the kind of upward mobility of evangelicals, particularly t- taking advantage of the GI Bill, going to college for the first time in the 60s and 70s. And that's actually part of, interestingly enough, upward mobility leads to lower birth rates among evangelical women. And that's actually part of the story of the decline is this kind of partial upward mobility. Now, there's still a big difference between the evangelical wing and the mainline wing in terms of education with mainliners being much more likely to have a college degree. But but it's interesting that sort of, you know, even among college-educated evangelicals, we see this sense of nostalgia being very, very strong uh, in them. And, and I think it's, it's pretty striking. Even among non-Christian groups, though, I mean, church attendance is going down, religious observance is going down. I mean, wouldn't another way to frame this just be the decline of religious America overall? 
Well, yes. I mean, I think you could say that. Certainly we are seeing that. But when we look at where the unaffiliated have come from, they have come disproportionately from, you know, white Christian churches. I mean, part of that's because this is the dominant groups in the country, right? So they drive these trends by being dominant. But but I also think that there's something um, really palpable to say about you know, these groups that really did, I think it's hard for us to even remember, you know, in, in this day and age, what kind of power these groups wielded in the middle of the 20th century. And it is really that kind of waning cultural dominance, institutional dominance, that I think is part of the, and really important part of the story here. You know, I'm about halfway through your book, and you're so scrupulously fair and neutral that I haven't gotten a strong sense of where you really stand on this. Given that's the trend and it's inevitable, do you want it to accelerate? Do you think it's a good thing for American society, or do you think we'd be better off if it slowed down a little bit? I'm happy to hear that uh, that it feels like I'm trying to be fair. The book really is trying to describe a new reality, and at, at the end of the book, so I begin the book with an obituary, right, where I just try to lay out, here's my, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but uh, try to kind of personify white Christian America and talk about its death and write it up as an obituary. And at the end of the book, you know, I wrote the end of the book kind of as a eulogy and thinking about, so what is there to say to these different, you know, audiences in, in the country and, and trying to kind of envision presiding over a really complicated death, right, where some people had this very close relationship with the deceased, other people had this very conflicted, you know, maybe even abusive relationship with the deceased, and what do you say? So I think that there are certainly lessons to draw. And so for, you know, the folks that are grieving the loss of white Christian America, you know, I mostly have to say to them that, you know, these are realities that, that this group really has to come to terms with, that denial and kind of anger based on denial is not really going to be, uh, you know, a viable option uh, going forward. Uh, on the other hand, like for the folks that may be tempted to very quickly dance on the grave of, you know, white Christian America, I have a couple of words of caution, at least, that, you know, it, it's worth noting that, you know, if we think about kind of our civic institutions uh, in society, many, many of them trace their roots to, you know, this world, this kind of lost world now of white Christian America. They were started by Presbyterians or Episcopalians or Baptists. And, and you know, it's important to ask the question, like, where is the energy going to come from or the uh, social capital going to come from uh, to kind of continue to build new institutions, to revitalize civil society when these institutions that built many of these things are really, um, you know, on the decline. Robert P. Jones is the author of The End of White Christian America. I recommend it. Robert, thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Don Lemon is the worst anchor on CNN. If I didn't know better, I'd say he was related to lying Hillary Clinton.